Yes, I'm so excited. Jeff Struker is one of my favorite people in the whole world. He is literally the most humble person I've ever met. And I would not be surprised if his face turns red when I tell you about all of his accomplishments. He refuses to talk about them, so I will. Jeff Struker, guys, have you seen the movie Black Hawk Down? That was Jeff Struker. He was the one who was doing it in real life, okay? He was Army Ranger of the Year. And I don't know if you guys know how hard it is to be an Army Ranger, but he was like the top guy. So he is like an incredibly decorated soldier. He's written multiple books and you should buy them. I won't go into detail because I uh, hopped on when Jason was geeking out about the books. So I think he did a good job there. But Jeff is now um, a pastor at Two Cities uh, Church, right? Yes. And um, he is one of the best speakers I've ever heard. And so I, and he has a podcast. His podcast is called Unbeatable Podcast. You guys have to download it. He gets people from every walk of life to tell their stories of overcoming. And today I'm excited for Jeff just to share a little bit about who he is, what he's done, and the whole idea of just overcoming difficulties with Army Ranger-like abilities. Jeff, the floor is yours. Wow. Thanks, Megan. Um, you should go on the road with me and introduce me every time that I'm speaking somewhere because you do a better job of it than I do. Um, hey, Renee or Megan, do you guys mind just showing, there's like a one minute and 30 second video, if that's okay with you guys, if we can just show that video, it'll give you a little bit more background. Yep, I've got it and I am going to share it right now. Give me one second. We're going to play. And master yourself. Master your support. And then the last thing you need to be able to master is sacrifice. I'll tell you a little bit about how I ended up in the U.S. Army and how I ended up in Mogadishu, Somalia, getting shot at and taking part in the events of Black Hawk Down. I think many people think, oh, Jeff got shot at and he got scared and, and he's different because of it. And really that wasn't it. Been in firefights and previous combat um, tours before this. You be honest with yourself for just a second. Are you the kind of guy who's going through life just simply looking for comfort and looking for convenience? Every time it gets hard, you're running for the escape. Because if that's the way you're living your life, you will never become the warrior that God has created. And every fiber of my being was saying, no, Jeff, don't do this. This is crazy. It's suicide. You're going to get yourself killed if you go back out. I mean, God is sending us to go out and to impact the world for King Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit punched me in the face at this instant and helped me realize, Jeff, your job as a Christian soldier is not just to prepare warriors to meet the enemy. It's to prepare them for eternity. Thank you. Um, thanks, everybody, for um, hanging in with me through that video. So I just used the video as a little background to explain some of my experience in the Army. Um, I think I'm going to do something a little bit different with you guys today. I don't always get it. There's a story that I love to tell, but I don't always get a chance to tell it because people always want me to talk about Black Hawk Down. Um, I'd love to share the Black Hawk Down story with you guys sometime, but 
There was a very pivotal moment for me later on in my career before I retired. And because of the group that we're talking to today, I think I'd like to share this story with you. It's another war story, if you'll bear with me. Um, and then what I'd like to do is just open it up for a lot of Q&A, if there is any. Um, but I totally want to respect everybody's schedules. So my call to ministry came immediately after the bullets stopped flying in Black Hawk Down. I had a very solid Christian faith. I spent most of the battle absolutely certain I was going to die. And I don't have the right words to explain this. God just gave me the peace that passes all understanding. And I was ready um, and comfortable with the fact that I'm not going to see tomorrow. My buddies noticed that there was something different about me in the middle of that firefight, and they started asking me questions. Almost immediately after the battle was over with, I just felt this very strong sense from God that he wanted me to go into the ministry, but I had no education. I went in the army straight out of high school, so I had no experience, and that set me on the path. Those of you in this group, you know the, the path that it takes to eventually make it into ministry, especially military ministry in the U.S. Army. So eventually I get a degree, I get the, uh, the experience, and I become an Army chaplain. I want to fast forward a few years. It's June of 2006, and I have been repeatedly to Iraq and Afghanistan. And when I say repeatedly, as an Army chaplain working with the Army Rangers, I've been to Afghanistan nine times, to Iraq five times at this point, and it's nonstop. I'm spending more time in Iraq or Afghanistan than at home with my family. So we're overseas, and I'm the chaplain for this special operations force. It has guys and gals from all branches of the military, and I just happened to be uh, the supervising chaplain, one of the, you know, the command chaplain at the time. And I get uh, one of the staff uh, leaders comes to my um, tent because we're still living in tents in Afghanistan. And he wakes me up in the middle of the morning and he says, hey, chaplain, the boss needs to talk to you. Now, I need to tell you, it's the middle of the morning because the Ranger and Special Operations Force that I'm working with are on what we call reverse cycle, which means we sleep all day long and then we get up when the sun goes down, start planning missions, go out and start hitting high value targets. And we always try to wrap up and be back at our base before the sun comes back up. I told Megan and a few other people, we live like vampires when I was overseas, which means go out and do bad things to people at night and then scurry back before the sun comes up. So my boss wakes me, uh, somebody wakes me up and says, hey, Jeff, the boss needs to talk to you. And he's waiting for me. And he says, I got a decision that I need to make and I need you to pray for me. Now he and I go back many, many years. We've known each other for a long time. And um, apparently what's happened in the course of this day, while all of us were still sleeping, is a really small special operations team went into a very steep mountain valley way up in the Hindu Kush mountain range, which is the base of the Himalayan mountains. There was a reconnaissance mission. We think there's some bad guys in that valley. You guys go up there and check it out. See if there's some bad guys in the valley. And if there are, report back to us and we'll start planning a mission to go kill the Taliban that are in the valley. 
Well, this small Navy SEAL team goes into the valley and almost immediately comes under enemy fire. And three of the four SEALs are killed. One of them barely escapes with his life and he's on the run. This compound that I'm in is at Bagram Air Base in northern Afghanistan. On this air base, we live inside this walled compound inside the military base, which is inside a, a second, another layer of security. Down the street from us is another walled compound, and it's the only other special operations force in the country. My unit, my boss, literally has access to virtually the entire US military when we're overseas. All assets that belong to the US military get diverted to my boss's attention if he needs them. And the US military has a policy in place that no matter how uh, important the enemy target is that we may be hitting tonight, if there's an American that's um, in need, we will stop all operations and focus all of the attention to that one American. So the commander for that other special operations force walks down the road, comes to our gate, knocks on the door and says, I need to talk to your commander. One of my men is in trouble. We don't have the assets and all of the resources that we need to get him. Would you help? My commander wakes me up in the middle of the morning and says, Jeff, I need you to pray for me because I've got a pretty significant decision that I've got to make. If we don't go into that valley, there's no doubt that one lone Navy SEAL is going to die. If I go into that valley and put helicopters and our force in that valley, there's a really good chance that they're going to get shot down. You guys and gals that are at, uh, listening at this point, you know the Navy SEAL that I'm talking about? Do you know the story that I'm referring to? This, of course, is Marcus Luttrell, and it's the mission to go get the lone survivor. So my boss says, Jeff, I know you. You know me. I'm not asking for military advice. I've got a whole team of planners around me. I'm asking you because you were one of the guys on the ground in Somalia that went back and forth in and out of those city streets. You know exactly how dangerous this is. And if I don't put men in helicopters in that valley, Marcus Luttrell is going to die. If I put them in the helicopters and put them in that valley, there's a good probability those men are going to die. And I have to make the decision and no one can make it for me. And part of the reason I'm telling you guys this story instead of the Black Hawk Down story is to talk about the pressure of leadership. You ever heard the phrase, it's lonely at the top? Anybody heard that phrase before? Do you know that there was some research done by Harvard University on that phrase? And it's actually absolutely true. And here's what's fascinating. The biggest bosses in the world are totally surrounded by people every waking second of the day. So when people are saying, why is it so lonely at the top? What Harvard researchers realized is at the very top, you have to make decisions that nobody else can make. And your decisions have incredible consequences. And the weight of those decisions sit on your shoulders and only on your shoulders. It's lonely at the top because of the weight of the world that's sitting on your shoulders. 
And yeah, you got lots of people to advise you, but nobody else can make that decision for you. And I'm sitting there watching my boss. I can see it in his eyes. He is bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he said, hey, chaplain, will you just pray for me? So I sit down right next to him on a little plywood bench that we just made with screws and, you know, a couple of nails and I pray for this commander. And I get up and I watch him with his head sunk down low and his shoulders hunched over, walk back to his office because he's about to make a very difficult decision. And he knows people are going to die tonight. My boss to make a long story short, makes a decision to send two of our largest helicopters into that valley. Each helicopter have a crew of about six to eight people in the crew. And then the back of the helicopter has about 14 to 20 Navy SEALs on them. We're gonna send two helicopters in that valley. We're gonna wait as long as we can the plan is to put the helicopters in, the SEALs will start moving as fast as they can, and they're gonna to try to get to Marcus Luttrell. We do all of the plans that we can. We've got very heavily guarded or very heavily armed helicopters. And if you read the official reports of what happens next, the first helicopter goes flying over the ridge line and starts to hover. And then as the helicopter begins to hover, because the, the ridge is so steep, there's no way you can land that helicopter. They throw out ropes and those Navy SEALs are going to slide down ropes and start to move on foot. Before the SEALs are even able to get out of the helicopter, that helicopter comes under gunfire. It's hit with a rocket-propelled grenade. The grenade hits the fuel tank and the helicopter explodes while it's still in the air, hits the ground, and everybody on board is killed instantly. The second helicopter is coming over the ridge and starting to hover while this is all going on. He pulls off, that helicopter comes under intense gunfire and barely makes it back to our base. Now nobody is on the ground. We have three dead Navy SEALs, Marcus Luttrell is on the run, and the entire crew of that helicopter has just been killed instantly in what becomes the greatest single casualty producing event in the 20 years of war over there. And now we have the mission to go get them. You probably are aware of this, US military does not leave dead bodies on the battlefield. And we start a massive rescue operation to go get essentially 20 dead Americans and one guy that's still on the run. This massive rescue operation, listen to how huge this rescue operation is. We get the rest of the Navy SEALs to come to our base and they start to load up. We go to a close U.S. military base where there's a Marine Corps battalion, several hundred Marines. There is a company of Army infantry. There is a special forces team from the Army. There's a Navy SEAL team. There are uh, Air Force combat controllers and Air Force air tactical controllers in the midst. And then there is a company of Army Rangers, literally a thousand people assembled together to go move into that valley and to go recover those bodies. The Recovery mission becomes known as Operation Red Wings Phase Two. 
Operation Red Wings was the mission for Marcus Luttrell and his buddies to go recon that valley. Operation Red Rings is get all of those bodies back out of that valley, send them all home to America and to their families and go rescue Marcus Luttrell if you can. Over the course of the next 24 hours, the United States puts Marine Corps Harriers, Navy Tomcats, um, the Air Force's um, F-16s, and they're lined up, they're dropping smart bombs, they're dumping thousands of bombs in that valley to keep the enemy away from Marcus Luttrell until finally, and if you read his book, he'll tell you in the last chapter of the book that a company of rangers, it's actually Charlie Company, 2nd Ranger Battalion, moves their way on foot to go rescue Marcus Luttrell and bring him back to the United States. The news internationally and the U.S. news crucified us for the decision to go into that valley. Basically, what they said is that helicopter cost the taxpayers $40 million. All of those people that died going into the valley, the news kept reportedly repeating over and over again, one lone American wasn't worth the cost. There were way too many people that died, way too much money and equipment that was destroyed to go get that one lone American. And everybody that I know that was on that mission, every single one of them said, I was more than willing to go. I was more than willing to fight. I was even willing to give my life if necessary to get Marcus Luttrell out of that valley. Many of my buddies got really, really offended by the news reports. And I had to remind them, listen, the news doesn't value human life the way that you and I do. So in their minds, it's not worth it to go rescue one lone survivor. But for you and I, of course we would be willing to do that. And the reason we would be willing to do that is because we know that if it was us in that valley, this is what we would want people to do for us. So of course we would be willing to do that. I don't get a chance to tell audiences the, the lone survivor story very often because everybody wants to hear the Black Hawk Down story. But if I can be honest with you, because of this group, because of who you are, because of what you do for the kingdom and for the people that God has placed in your leadership, I really want you to hear something that God used this mission to just powerfully remind me. I'm sitting there and I'm watching all of these people, all branches of the military, aircraft from all over the U.S. Literally, the U.S. military just stopped what they were doing and focused everything that they have on getting one guy out of that valley. And it was spectacular to be part of this mission. And the news just kept saying, that one guy's not worth it. It's not worth it. And as I was sitting there watching this whole thing go down, as I was very active in the operations cell when the whole thing was being uh, conducted, a verse of scripture started to rattle in the back of my minds. It occurred to me, this is not even close to what it took for Jesus to go on a rescue mission, to go get me, right? I started thinking about Romans chapter five, verse eight. And I'm not gonna do a Bible study with you guys. Most of you, understand the Bible, can explain it better than I can. 
But remember, Romans 5 is saying, listen, let me tell you about the value of a human life. For a good man, most people would never be willing to die for another man. And maybe if you were a really, really good person, somebody would be willing to die for you. But then in Romans 5, verse 8, it says this, but while we were still in our sin, Jesus died for us. And he's basically saying, you could never comprehend what it cost for Jesus to rescue you out of that valley and to clean you up and to make you acceptable to God. And I was watching this and I was moved deeply by what the U.S. military was doing for Marcus Luttrell. Even to this day, Marcus Luttrell has no idea the amount of people and uh, bombs and uh, planners and everything else that it took to get him out of that valley. But you and I get the privilege of standing before God's people and reminding them the value of one human life. And if you really want to know how much one human life is worth, it's not measured in bombs on a battlefield. It can't be measured in the amount of equipment or money that was lost. It's not even measured in the number of people that went on that rescue mission. The only way to really measure the value of a human soul is to look at the cross. And this is what it took for us to be made uh, right. This is what it took for us to be cleaned up. This is what it took for us to be made free. And as I watched what the U.S. military did for Marcus Luttrell, it occurred to me, this isn't even a fraction of what it took for me to be set free, for you to be set free. And I wish everyone in America got a chance to see what I saw in Bagram Air, Air Base in Afghanistan. Because what I saw was a level of commitment that very few people on the planet will ever see. Just the love for a comrade that you're willing to lay your life down for him. But more importantly, what I saw reminded me of what happened on a hillside outside Jerusalem. And that has stuck with me ever since June of 2006. I will probably go to my grave thanking God for the privilege of pastoring my heroes because we planted a church right before COVID started. Nobody had even heard the word COVID. Six weeks uh, before COVID began, we launched our Sunday services, but we launched on the campus of a local university right outside of one of America's largest military bases. And the church is in almost entirely made up of the military. And every time I see them, I think to myself, God, what a privilege to be able to pastor guys and gals like this. What a privilege to be able to be around these warriors and their families. And man, I'm, I must be one of the, the, you know, the happiest guys on earth to be able to pastor my heroes, the kind of people that would do today what they did back in that valley in Afghanistan in 2006. So forgive me for taking us on a curveball and going on a different route. Instead of talking Black Hawk Down, I just wanted to encourage you, the level of commitment that the U.S. military has, I see that only one other place on the planet. It is the most powerful army. It's not the U.S. Army that's the most powerful army on the planet. It is, of course, the army of the Lord Jesus Christ who has been marching strong for 2,000 years and nothing on this planet will stop them. And one of these days, Jesus will call his army to be uh, to come and to be with him for eternity. 
But man, what a privilege to be with you guys today and to talk to some of the leaders of Jesus's army. Um, so I think I'm done talking now, and I wanted to open up the floor for Q&A. Renee, I don't know if you do that through chat or if you do that just uh, through voice or whatever, but I, I wanted to stop and give lots of time for Q&A before we wrap up. Thanks for sharing that story and just spending time with this uh, group of leaders of the Christian church of, across America. And I just want to open the floor, you guys. Unmute yourselves. We've got another good 20 minutes to just spend with Jeff. Uh, so if you have a question or a comment or anything you want to share today, I'm just going to let you guys unmute yourselves and 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 have that conversation. And Jeff, it takes them a minute to find the mute button sometimes. So don't don't be offended. They'll get there. No doubt. <laughs> Yes, Eric, I see your hand up. Go for it, hey, friend. You know, uh, I want to thank you, Jeff, for sharing that. You know, um, I could relate not from the military standpoint, but just uh, life experience itself. And one thing I understand about what has been given to me by the Lord is that what he's given me, I can't keep it unless I give it away. And that's the sacrifice I hear you talking about. You know, I have to be willing to go back to where I come from to get those who are left behind. You know, that's the mission. Yeah. You know, go get those that are like you. You know, go get them. That's right. You know, that's that's the mission. He didn't give me this thing to sit around and twiddle my fingers and, and be just happy. It was the mission is to go and seek and save the lost. You know. Thank you for sharing that, Eric. And I was going to say thank you for your ministry, buddy. But uh, a thank you for that reminder that I can't keep it unless I'm willing to give it away. I needed to hear that. In fact, yeah. I'll probably not write that down um, and use that one day. But I'll, I'll quote you and give you all the credit for it. Actually, <laughs> some, it don't, don't belong to me. All right. <laughs> you know, but that's 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 uh Matthew uh, uh 28, 18 through 20. That's mm -hmm. that paraphrasing it, that's what it says. Go ye into all the world, you know, and uh, uh seek and save lost. And, and it's a command meaning that you can't keep what I've given you unless you're willing to go give it away. Thank you, buddy. Amen. Renee, I have a question. Actually, I, I have a ton of questions for Jeff, but I, I want to be, I want to leave it open for other pastors uh, and ministry colleagues to jump in. But uh, while while my ministry colleagues are thinking about the questions, um, Jeff, thank you, um, thank you for serving our country um, the way you have, the way you have uh, time and time again, you put your life on the line. Very grateful for that. Thank you. Um, Jeff, I, I am a, a clinical psychologist. I actually did my, uh, clinical internship, uh, counseling Marines and, um, and I was just, uh, did a lot of work in the PTSD, uh, space. And I'm just wondering whether you can comment. My, my question is this, but I'm going to, I'm going to pose the question. And then I'm going to tell a bit of a, a, a uh, give an account of one Marine that I was counseling just to kind of reinforce uh, the question. Um, does Christian faith 
mediate, reduce, influence the likelihood of developing PTSD. Because in, in my, you know, you, you have seen more than enough life-threatening situations to develop a really significant case of post-traumatic stress disorder. And what I discovered in my, in my clinical internship counseling these Marines that you could put two, two Marines or, or Army, Army Rangers, uh, military, you know, outside the wire, um, deployed in life-threatening situations where both of them come under significant fire and, and the, the, the possibility of mortality was very high. And yet, after the event, once they've once they've returned to civilian life, if 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 that is possible, um, one will develop PTSD and the other won't. Um, one of the and here's the experience I had. One of the Marines came in to see me one day, and I he he'd had a terrible a terrible weekend because he went out with a girl for the first time. And uh, he was really enamored by this girl. And the date went tremendously, you know, well. He was very excited. And as he was walking her, uh, walking her back to the front door, there was a, a gardener's truck that hit a pothole mm -hmm. in the street. And all the gardening, you know, the lawnmowers and everything just kind of flew up in the back of this tray and came down with a large... Uh, crash in the back of of the pickup truck and he just instinctively took the girl threw her down on the ground and laid over her with his his body and um uh he said it, it freaked her out in fact he, he says i there's no chance of me getting a second date um but he said i in in that moment i i felt I was back in Afghanistan. He was one of the uh, Marines that was deployed in the Sangin Valley in Afghanistan, which saw uh, heavy losses. And he was, uh, he, he, he had PTSD just all over him. And, and, you know, uh, lots of other uh, Marines that I counseled have too. How does, how does Christian faith influence? Because you don't seem to me to, to be presenting with any post-traumatic stress yeah. residue. So I'm just wondering, how does Christ, how does, how does the Christian faith, how does that mediate the development of PTSD? Yeah. Well, first, thank you for your question. And secondly, Wes, thank you for the work that you're doing with warriors. Um, I could spend a really long time on this question because I think it deserves a, a full answer. Um, I probably get more random phone calls. And I mean, literally people just out of the blue across America say, I need to talk to you, Jeff. You're the only person, this is their language. You're the only person in America that would understand me because you were in Black Hawk Down and now you're a, a, a pastor and I am struggling with PTSD and I want to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that anybody else could understand me. First, I think that statement's pretty insane. There's many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that would understand if you give them a chance, but I don't get into that argument. Oftentimes, people are looking for one of two things. I saw something terrible in combat. 
I am changed because of what I saw in combat. And Jeff, I need you to help me go back to the guy or the gal that I was before that combat experience. And I have to unfortunately disappoint a lot of people because what I tell them is there's no going back. There's no undoing what you saw or what you did in combat. You can build a healthy and a productive future but if you want to go back to the guy that you were, if you want to make the nightmares go away, unfortunately, that may never, ever happen. And if you were to ask my wife, she would tell you, Jeff is a very, very different man than I married. I think she would say maybe better in some ways and worse than others, but he's a very different man than I married. And she would tell you it's entirely because of combat. And I would agree. So for that guy or gal that says, I want to go back to the person that I was before war, that's just not going to happen. I wish it was possible, but that is humanly impossible. So let's figure out how to get healthy going forward, not try to go back and do what's impossible. The second group of people, though, they're saying, I don't want to live anymore because of what I saw, because of what I did. I hate myself because of what I did, and I don't want to live anymore. And this is where I end up spending time with total strangers that reach out to me from all over America. And what I tell them is combat, especially taking another human being's life in a violent war, is going to leave, I refer to this as a scar on your soul. That's actually not a bad thing. It's designed by God so that you and I would give inherent value and worth to another human being because they're created in his image. We're supposed to be impacted by what we saw, what we did in combat. However, if that hangs over your head for the next 20 years, listen, if you're in the VFW 50 years from now, drinking yourself to, to a stupor tonight, because you can't live with what you did in combat, we need to get you professional help. And the, to answer your question, I do believe this is the point where Christian faith steps in and makes all the difference. Listen, Christian faith can't undo what you did on the battlefield, but to keep in mind, there is a holy God who forgives anyone and everyone what they did, no matter how heinous it was, even on the battlefield. And you don't have to wonder what he's going to say when you stand before him in heaven. That alone separates Christianity. But I think Christianity does something else for guys and gals like me that had a rock solid faith when the bullets are flying. So perhaps one of the bravest warriors America has ever produced was in the Civil War, a guy by the name of Thomas Jackson. You know him as Stonewall Jackson. And in the first real battle that Stonewall Jackson was in, when he got the nickname Stonewall because he was standing like a stone wall within a withering hail of bullets, one of his junior officers said, General Jackson, I don't understand. Everyone else is totally terrified. Everyone else is freaking out around you. How is it that you're able to be so calm in the middle of this battle? And Jackson's theology is what influenced this. He said, my belief in God teaches me that God is sovereign, that the date of my death is set that there is nothing that I can do to change it. And therefore, and this is where Jackson's theology separates people from that are struggling with PTSD from those that don't. 
And I would wholeheartedly agree with Jackson at this point. He says, therefore, I can feel as safe on the battlefield as I can in my own bed because the date of my death is fixed. And when I was in Somalia and I was 100% certain, like everyone around me, we're all going to die in the next few moments. I had this rock solid view of the sovereignty of God. God, you decide who lives. You decide who dies. There's nothing I can do to change that. I'm just going to conduct myself with honor. I don't want to go back ashamed of what I did. And whatever happens next, God, it's totally in your hands. And Wes, I think I and many other thousands, maybe millions of Christians like me over the course of human history have been able to handle war through the lens of Christian faith because of the sovereignty of God. And Ultimately, what happens is in his hands, I just have to be responsible for how I conduct myself on the battlefield. There's much, much more that needs to be said about this answer, but that's kind of my very short answer to a really, really important question. Thank you, Jeff. That was awesome. <laughs> taking, taking heaps of notes here as you're, as you're uh, speaking. So, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear the, uh, myself off the floor. Somebody else go and take advantage of, of Jeff's uh, great leadership wisdom here. Seth, go. Hey, Jeff. Again, thank you for serving and sharing today as well. Um, I've seen both of those movies, and so I appreciated hearing the story there from you as well. Um, my question I guess would be with your boss and um, the idea of being, you know, leadership is lonely at the top. It's lonely at the top. In the post-op of those types of decisions, or maybe from your personal experience, what are some maybe universal um, coping methods or mechanisms that can help overcome after an incredibly difficult decision has been made that didn't go the way you wanted it to go? Yeah, sure. Um... I feel like this is just me personally talking now, and then I'm going to answer your question. I am convinced, and I've said this to the families, that I am personally responsible for Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart's death and the medals of honor that they received because I was fighting my way to get to them multiple times, and I never got there before they were overrun and they were killed in the city streets. And I'm convinced that it was me that's responsible for that death. And I have to carry that with me for the rest of my life. My boss will carry with him the death of all of those people on that helicopter for the rest of his life. And there's no way to kind of take that weight off of the shoulders. And I kind of believe that there's that, although that can become unhealthy, you can take an unhealthy amount of responsibility. I do think that there's something healthy in remembering we're talking about human lives now. And that should weigh on your shoulders and it should weigh on your shoulders basically for the rest of your life. However, it doesn't have to haunt you. It doesn't have to hold you back. It doesn't have to make you uh, throw in your hands and give up your you know, ability to lead at this or, or other levels. My boss went on to lead at the highest levels um, in the US military, but he would also tell you he's a changed man because of that decision. Have you ever noticed that when the president of the United States retires, if they went into office with some normal hair cover, they always leave office gray. Most of them leave office fully gray 
and gray much faster than when they went into office. Have you ever wondered why they go gray? It's almost entirely because of the decisions, the, the amount of weight of the decisions that they have to make. And for wartime presidents, every one of them has always said the same thing. It's the weight of human lives that, that was lost under my presidency and my decisions. And that should make us go gray. I do think you can still surrender that to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can place it in the hands of a sovereign God. You can ask the Holy Spirit to help you deal with it and mitigate it and handle it in a healthy and appropriate way, but it's going to leave a lasting mark. And I'm not just talking about hair color now. That's going to leave a lasting mark on every leader, and it should. Um, and I don't know that there. I don't think we, America, wants a leader that can just shrug that off like no big deal. Um, I don't know that that completely answered your question, but I did want to uh, put it in context there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I think the most difficult decisions pastors, church leaders, Christian leaders are going to make, um, because it's lonely at the top, the hardest decisions you will ever make are personnel decisions, because you know personnel decisions not just impact the organization, but they impact the people and their families and everybody close to them. And those decisions are what turns our hair gray, because personnel decisions are really, really hard to make. Most of us instinctively know the right answer to those decisions, but weighing the hurt that those decisions are going to make man, those decisions get really heavy loads to carry because personnel decisions are always the hardest decisions to make because we're talking about people's lives now, their futures, their families. Yeah. I don't know if you guys are aware that I teach, sorry to interrupt, I teach leadership at the master's and PhD level at the Southeastern Baptist Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And I try to just get real um, and honest with the students in my class about the heavy load that leaders carry. Um, and I call it a terrible privilege. It is a privilege that God has placed us in leadership, but some of the responsibilities are just terrible to bear. So it's a terrible privilege to be a leader for King Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff, you've been a, a uh, leader on the battlefield and you are a leader in the church and against the uh, principalities and powers where the real battle is being waged. And, and uh, I thank you for uh, your Christian manhood and uh, the model of leadership, because what you've shared with us today, it, it has impressed on me that there's a metaphor for what we do in spiritual warfare in battling for this destinies, the lives and the destinies of people uh, that just demands that we elevate our view of our role as Christian leaders uh, in the Lord's church in this generation. So thank you. Thanks, Ken. Um, Ken, I think you just identified what I was trying to say by telling the black or the lone survivor story. Um, what happened in that valley was pretty important in 2006, but what you do uh, 
it reverberates for 10,000 years into eternity. It's infinitely more important what you do than what the U.S. military did in that valley of Afghanistan. And every time it gets hard and that load is heavy to carry, just remind yourself what you do matters for eternity. What the U.S. military does matters for a decade, a generation, maybe 100 years. But what you do matters for eternity. You've impressed that on us in a big way today, brother. Thank you. Thanks. I just want to throw one thing out there. Maybe you could give, yeah, he smiled. First of all, he's a doctor, guys. Don't let him fool you. He has a PhD in all of the things, so keep that in mind. But the thing that I would like you to hit on, um, we've had conversations about it, and it was mentioned briefly in your video. If you could just quickly give just a couple of steps. I know the pastors on this call would love it where one of the big things that you like to do is help men be men yeah. and like rise up and step up to that challenge without the like toxic masculinity. Sure. But I think sometimes we misdiagnose just yeah. masculinity. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Sure. That podcast right there, you know, it's really designed to hit men from the flank. Um, I don't do it as a frontal assault, but I'm trying to subtly influence the kind of man that they are and their faith. And I do it by just bringing guests in that have a crazy, uh, an incredible story and then allowing the guests to kind of share it. But Megan's right. Um, my life's mission is to restore biblical manhood in America. And I call this biblical manhood because I really believe we're facing a crisis of masculinity like most 18-year-old boys, and I'm not using boy as an age, but 18-year or boy in the way that they approach life, most of them have no idea what it means to be a man because nobody has ever really called it out of them or held them accountable to it. So I'm trying to take weak, passive guys and turn them into strong, passionate followers of Jesus Christ who will be tender with their families, but tough in the most dangerous or difficult circumstances. And I really believe men need to be led by example, not, mm. not necessarily just my example, but they need other men that they can look up to and aspire to. And one of my goals in life is to just go to the kind of men that want nothing to do with the local church, get to them right where they're at and challenge them about the life that they're living. And in the process, tell them, hey, listen, you can't pull this one off on your own. You need supernatural outside help. Without the help of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never be the man God has created you to be. And as Megan said, that's what I was saying to a audience in Nashville, Tennessee, in that um, little promo clip. I got, I believe God has called every man to be a warrior and confront evil and make a difference right where they're at. But most of us need to be led personally and see this by example. Um, mm. And not just me, but all of us need a mentor that we can look up to and say, man, I want to be just like that guy one day. Mm. Mm. Jeff, have you written a book on, on this subject? Yeah, well, The Road to Unafraid, my first book, I have, a, as Megan said, I have a number of books in print, um, but the first book was designed to reach a military guy with no interest in faith. 
And there's 13 chapters. The first 12 chapters is just me earning the right to tell them, okay, now that we get to chapter 13, let me just confront you in the face about your faith and about the way that you're living. And hopefully I've earned the right to do what I'm about to do at chapter 13. Very quickly, the publishers were fighting me about chapter 13, and they were like, this doesn't sound like the rest of the book. We need to change it. And I was like, stop. If chapter 13 changes, I won't publish this book. The whole reason for this book is the last chapter, and I'm just going to confront guys about the way that they're living because I've earned, hopefully, at this point, I've earned the right to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Keep writing books. Yes, in my spare time, I'll keep writing books. <laughs> um, hey, I want to respect your time, but I also have to jump off of this and make another call in like 30 seconds. By the way, that's the airborne phrase for 30 seconds where you're getting ready to jump out of an airplane. Um, so can we wrap things up in just a second, y'all? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, let me just go ahead and close this out in prayer uh, and we'll do that. Jeff, thank you from the bottom of my heart so very much for pouring into this team today. I appreciate you. Uh, Father God, we love you. We just want to take a minute to just uh, thank you so much for Jeff and his ministry. And we ask a uh, hedge of protection around it, a hedge of protection around his family, people he's working with. We ask that you resource him and bless him to just continue to do the good work for your kingdom that he's doing. I just ask um, a special blessing around all of our heroes uh, in that serve the, the United States. And I just ask that you protect them. I ask that you bless them. I, I ask that you keep resourcing them with really great people that love you like Jeff and like Dr. Wes. Just just keep keep showing up for them in that way. We love you and we praise you. And, and we just uh, ask that you continue to use us to grow your kingdom. Uh, and and win your battle for for the souls of the lost in your heavenly father's name amen, amen. thanks guys thanks, thanks everyone bye, bye.